0: Uh, is this the Lund Loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Lund Loop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of trading, markets, and life. And as invariably happens whenever I start the Lund Loop podcast, there's some outside noise. Usually it's my gardener. Today it's a monsoon. That's right. We're about to have a monsoon here in Southern California. I'll spare you the gory details, but basically there is a hurricane in Baja. And normally they don't get very far north, but apparently there's this one that is going to get farther north than any hurricane since 1974. So it's going to bring us a lot of rain, a lot of wind. At the end of the day, it's not going to do any harm. It's going to probably help us with our drought. So anyway, if you hear some pitter-patter in the background, that's what it's all about today. So I'm going to talk in a moment about the business of trading. But first, I want to discuss a question that I saw somebody pose on Twitter this week. The question was, what's the thing that you bought that has given you the most pleasure in your life? I think they may have framed it as the most ROI. And I started to think about this. And every time I, I go through this exercise in my head, I always come up with one item. It's a $1.50 cup holder. So let me give you a little more context on this. When I was 20 years old, I bought a 1967 Mustang from my sister. I was the only person in my family who ever had to buy that car. The car started out with my great aunt. She bought it brand new in 1967, when she was probably 67. And she basically drove it to the store and back for a number of years. Then she died. She willed it to my grandfather, who had it for a couple years, but basically kept it in the, the garage. He died, willed it to my dad. My dad died. He didn't really will it to my sister, but I had a car already at that point. And when she turned 16, that was the extra car that my mom had. So she got it. And then when I was 20, she needed money for... She wanted to move out. I think she was moving out uh, from living with a boyfriend or something. So I volunteered to buy the car for $1,500. By the way, I wanted this car my whole life. Ever since I first saw it when I was like 12 in my great aunt's garage. But I was like the... Fourth or fifth person in line, and I had to pay for it. I'm not bitter, okay? But I just want to tell you how the story went. This car was a beautiful Wimbledon white car. It wasn't a fastback, unfortunately, but it was a coupe that I loved. It had a 289 automatic in it, and inside, the whole interior, top to bottom, was cherry red. Everything was red. The carpet was red. The seats were red. The dashboard the padded dashboard was read everything the instrument panel read from head to toe and i love that car but that car had one flaw and the flaw was it had no drink holder now if you think about why would it have a drink holder back in 1967 when the car was built cars were not commodities cars were special they had some style They were almost like a piece of art. People wanted to keep their cars nice and neat and clean. And when they designed that car in 1967, the Ford engineers did not picture the owner driving down the street, eating a hoagie with one hand, and scarfing down a big gulp in the other hand. But unfortunately, that was the exact demo that 20-year-old Brian was. In fact, from my late teens through my 20s, into my early 30s, I was what you would probably describe as a soda fiend. I drank at least six sodas a day, every day. Probably more most of the time. And it was always Coke. Coke was my go-to. Not Pepsi. Coke. That's an important distinction. These days, people get it. Society has taught people that there is a distinction between Coke and Pepsi. But back in the day, it wasn't like that. Now, I have a long history in the service industry. I was a busboy. I was a bellman. But there is probably no more loathsome person in this world than the server who, when you say, could I have a Coke, brings you a Pepsi. And then when you say to them, hey, I ordered a Coke and you brought me a Pepsi, says, ah, Coke, Pepsi, what's the difference? So I was a Coke fiend. I was somewhat of a, Mr. Pibb fiend, and then a distant third would be Dr. Pepper fiend, And I would get those big gulps that I just mentioned. And it was so hard to manage them in that, that car because there was no place to put them. I always had to have my hand over it. I had to worry about hitting a, a stoplight really quick. Would it dump all over the place? One day, I was at AutoZone getting something, I don't know what. Came around the corner, and there it was, hanging from the shelf, this candy apple red, Drink holder. It's the type of drink holder that had a little hook that would go into the top section of your door panel, right where the the window came down. And what was great about it is it expanded, so it would fit a can of Coke, but it would also expand to a big gulp. And I can't tell you the pleasure that I had cruising around the streets of Southern California, windows down on a summer day, with a 32 or 64 ounce cold icy coke right up there at my left hand it was just it was bliss and even more so now and I look this next section I get it it's a it was a different time different place I was a different person I'm not endorsing this and I'm not proud of it but I would be a liar if I didn't say that it was super pleasurable and a super enjoyable part of my life I worked at the Sheraton Newport Now, you would think the Sheraton Newport, given its name, was a really nice hotel on the sand, but it wasn't. It was actually as far inland in Newport Beach as you could get. And what it was was a corporate hotel, the type of hotel where they fly in groups of new recruits every week so they can go to the headquarters and get trained and then go back to Nebraska or Omaha or wherever. So it wasn't a great property. However, It had a reciprocal relationship with some of the other Sheraton properties, one of which was the Sheraton Harbor Island in San Diego, which was and still is a fantastic property that is on the water. So as part of working at the Sheraton Newport, we could get free nights down at the Sheraton Harbor Island. And I would book three nights, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, get a bunch of my buddies and we'd cruise down, take that two hour drive down there. But before we got on the road, we would go to Del Taco, which is like a kind of a fast food Mexican uh, restaurant that's local to Southern California. Go to Del Taco, get one of their big 32-ounce Cokes, pour it out, go to the liquor store, get some Miller Genuine Draft Tall Boys, and pour them into that Del Taco cup. Then we'd put the lid back on with a straw, put it in the drink holder, and as you're cruising down the freeway, uh, it looks like you're drinking a Coke. So again, different time, different place, not endorsing it, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that it was so pleasurable for me to just be cruising down for the weekend, no responsibilities, all my buddies there, sipping a beer. It, it was just great. So as I look back on that little $1. fifty cup holder, it by by multitudes, it's probably the thing in my life that has given me the most pleasure, uh, the most ROI. I don't think anything will ever surpass that. I mean, unless one of my kids becomes the next Elon Musk. Uh, is this the Lund Loop? In last week's Lund Loop, I wrote a piece entitled How to Spot a Fake Trading Service. This piece must have really resonated with a lot of people because I got a ton of emails over the course of the week asking me questions about that piece. The number one question I got asked was, well, how do you really know if a service is fake? And then the second most asked question was a variation of, I'm thinking of using this service or my buddy uses this service, or hey, do you know this service? What do you think of them? basically asking me if I thought these services were fake. Unfortunately, there's no way to tell for sure if a service is fake. Unlike with a doctor or a lawyer or even a mortgage broker, there's no exams you have to take, there's no licensing that you have to do in order to launch a trading or investment newsletter. These newsletters are protected under the 1940 Investment Advisor Act from the SEC. It's hard to believe, but it's a 82 year old law. And basically what it says is you have to have two criteria to be exempt from regulation. One is you can only charge a flat fee, which means you can't charge a sliding percentage based upon different factors. So you charge a flat fee and the information that you give has to be blanket information, meaning You can't give specific information to specific people based upon their age or their risk profile. You can't tailor your information. So you can say, hey, I think Apple's a buy here, as long as you're just telling that to your whole general audience. You're not saying to a certain person, you should buy it, but you should do this. If you do that and you charge a flat fee, then you're exempt from any sort of regulation. Now, this is good in one sense because it allows the Lund Loop to exist. Otherwise, I'd have to have a whole team of lawyers you know, drawing up all these documents, and it would just be cost prohibitive to have any sort of trading or investing service in most cases. But the other side of it is you get a lot of mm, less than savory people, let's put it that way. And the truth is the only way you can really tell if a service is fake is to use common sense and then to kind of go on your gut based upon your experience. And it's not unlike screen time. The more experience you have, the better your intuition is. If you sit and spend 10,000 hours watching charts and price action, you get a feel for things and you may not be able to exactly quantify what's gonna happen, but you can say, I've seen this before, this feels familiar, or this rings a bell. That's how it is with spotting fake services. Now, I've come across a ton of fake services in the 35 years that I've done this. And I want to tell you a story about a memorable one uh, that stands out to me. So, this goes back to the very first Stocktoberfest. It's either the first or the second Stocktoberfest. And Stocktoberfest was an event organized by Stocktwits was down in coronado california which was the original headquarters for stock twits and it was basically you paid a certain amount of money and it was a conference and they would have a few hundred people i think there were like two three hundred people at the very first one it got as big as like 600 people and people would do different presentations it was a three-day event it was really a lot of fun and at the first one when we got together nobody really knew each other because Twitter and StockTwits were relatively new and people obviously lived all across the country. So you didn't know anyone in the sense that you'd never met him in person, but you knew them from your interactions online for the previous few years. So I was all excited, got spiffed up, got my car, drove down to the StockTwits headquarters in Coronado. I immediately met Sean McLaughlin who was a, uh, the head of social, uh, the, 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 the head of uh, community at that time, who's Chicago Sean. He's now with All Star Charts. Met Howard Lindzen, met Phil Perman, met a bunch of people, and it was totally great. Very excited to be there. And then all of a sudden, into the room where we were all congregating, walked a very beautiful young woman. Now, I say beautiful in the objective sense. Like anybody that would have looked at her would have said, wow, she's a beautiful woman. So much so that she stood out like a sore thumb in what was 95% a group of guys. And the whole room basically stopped and turned and looked at her. And she smiled and went over and started talking to a group and she made her way through the whole room, worked the whole room, eventually got over to where I was sitting talking to some people, and she introduced herself as Keiko Kawanamura. But call me Cakes. That's what she said. So Keiko Cakes, which you would put in quotes, Kawanamura, that was her name. And she represented that she was a hedge fund manager, which seemed a little odd because, first of all, nobody had ever heard of this person. Number two, she was pretty young, like 26, 27. And number three, she really didn't know much about stocks. It was one of those situations where you would start talking about stocks or trading and she would talk the game that most people could talk. But then when you wanted to get a little bit deeper, like what's her methodology or, you know, how does she find candidates? All of a sudden, uh, it changed to like, let's do shots, something like that. So you go, okay, but you want to be open-minded. You want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. You don't want to be judgmental. But as the weekend went on, just, I don't know, her demeanor, the way she acted, it was one of those things where, like, you get with someone, you go, Did you make Keiko cakes? And they'd go, Yeah. (laughs) You'd say, You know, she says she's a hedge fund manager. And they'd go, Yeah. (laughs) And then finally, after a couple of drinks, she goes, That's bullshit, right? She's just totally playing everybody in here. Ah, whatever. So the, the, the event concluded and um, Keiko went on and did her thing. And then she started a online service, like a subscription service. And again, it was really like, Hmm. Okay. I don't know. She went from being a hedge fund manager to now starting a newsletter service, which doesn't seem like the natural progression. You know, if you're a hedge fund manager, you're theoretically managing institutional money and to, kind of go to the retail side and do a, a newsletter yeah, seems like a step down. I don't know. But again, you don't want to be too judgmental. Well, it turns out that Keiko Cakes Kawanamura was a 100% scammer. Reading from the SEC documents as to what she did, uh, it says that from December 2011 through June of 2012, Kawanamura raised approximately $200,000 from at least seven investors for a hedge fund that she purportedly managed. Kawanamura falsely told investors, among other things, that she had substantial experience in the financial industry, including in the trading of stocks and options, and that she had achieved outstanding returns trading stocks and options in her own account. Contrary to Quantamura's representation to investors that she would invest all of the funds she raised in stocks and options, she misappropriated much of the hedge fund's money to pay for her living expenses and for luxury vacations to Miami and London. Of the approximately $55,000 Kimura did invest, she pulled the money in one brokerage account and lost it all in highly risky option trades. Hmm, okay, so that was her hedge fund there. As for her uh, her trading newsletter, in August of 2012, Kawanamura started a website, Kawanamura Financial, where she provided investment advice for a monthly subscription fee until February of 2014. Kawanamura promoted her website primarily through social media, including Twitter and Facebook, and used the website to provide investment advice to members who paid a monthly fee of between all right, and $174.95. The subscription fee varied based on the level of access granted to Kawanamura's website. Kawanamura solicited subscribers through a number of misrepresentations, including falsely claiming that she obtained an annual return in excess of 800% in her personal brokerage account that she had managed millions of dollars, and that she had nearly 10 years of experience in the financial industry. Now, remember earlier when I said there's no place that you can go to check on the experience of newsletter or investment letter publishers? It's true, there isn't. But there is a place called Google. And if you have a name like Keiko Cakes, Kawanamura, it's not too hard to find out Information. So let's take a look at what Mrs. Cakes' real experience was. In order to do that, we have to go to her IMDB page. It turns out that Keiko Cakes has a lot of experience. For example, playing herself in the straight-to-video movie Conveyor Belt of Love. She also played herself in an episode of Bully Beatdown. Then she went on to become Geisha Girl 2 in the TV movie Deadliest Warrior. After that, she was Fifi, the French maid, in A Thousand Ways to Die. And finally, in the video short Rain Makes Me Wet, she appeared as Sunbather No. 2. Not Sunbather number 1, Sunbather number 2. Going back to the SEC, it says Kawanamura made approximately $50,000 in subscription fees from approximately 70 different subscribers to her website. Kawanamura posted screenshots of portions of a brokerage account statement on her Twitter account, which many of her investors followed, which suggested that she was obtaining incredible returns in her own brokerage accounts. In fact, the screenshots reflected particular returns on unusually successful trades and or trading days from her boyfriend's brokerage account and were not indicative of the performance of the trading in her account. So, look, it's so easy to read this one blind. And I read it blind at Stocktoberfest, but, you know, you don't want to be a jerk. And here's how it works. Sometimes you get a pretty girl who is a front for a scammer and there is something about a certain segment of, I'll just say it, lonely, pathetic guys who, who like to trade and they get attracted to the idea of, you know, a beautiful woman who's also a trader. It's a, it's a double win for them. So you know when i i talked about the difference in the access fees it was 94.95 or 174.95 there was also another tier above that i remember it being a few hundred dollars and basically that one was like you got to have one-on-one video time with keiko and my guess is i'm just going out on a limb here i'm guessing the discussions were not really 100% a hundred percent about the market. Like I feel like it was maybe an early version of OnlyFans. And seventy uh, you know, some odd sad lonely guys got suckered in. I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that of those seventy people, not one was a female. Because first of all, they're too damn smart. <laughs> and number two, you know, they just they wouldn't fall for that. So anyway, so the, the outcome for Keiko Cakes Koanamura was that uh, she was fined two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars plus fourteen grand in interest, as well as an extra fifty thousand dollars in civil penalties. She was barred from the securities industry for an undetermined time. Usually, it's five; it's just five years. Sometimes, sometimes it's ten. Sometimes it's for life. I think in her case, it was five years, and then if she paid restitution and everything, you. She could come back. Uh, but she's never coming back to the industry. Uh, she's gone on to other things. You can find her on the internet. She's out there. She's on Twitter. She's, uh, I think, somewhere in Hawaii surfing. But look, you know, this is a fun story. But my point is is that you just you just got to be smart. You got to use your common sense. Uh, you have to use a little bit of intuition. Um, I'll tell you about... Four or five years ago, Trade Ideas asked me to come down and be on a panel for their um, their annual event that they have down there. And I know the guys from Trade Ideas and they're okay. Um, they've always been nice to me. They gave me a, a room, they put me up in a room at a hotel and I brought my family down, it was great. And so I was on a panel with four other people. And it was very obvious the moment I got on the panel that I was the odd duck out, first of all, at that time, I was 50, 51, and I think the average age of all the rest of the people on the panel was 28. They were all very uh, sure of themselves. They they were they were winners all the time. But what really stood out is that every single one of them had their own YouTube channel. I even remember like there's a clip online of me pausing and saying, you know, note to self, get a YouTube channel. But they didn't have YouTube channels like I have, where I just post a, you know, a a video update or a a market update. I mean, they have YouTube channels that have thousands of hours of highly produced uh, content. And I just knew, being on that panel, that the other four were, uh, mm, I still want to say scammers because the video is still out there. But just, I'm not sure I would give my money to them. Two of them have pretty much been found out for sure uh, to be scammers. One of them, I think, dropped off the face of the earth. The other one kind of falls in that demo of a uh, attractive woman that you know lonely traders are uh, attracted to. So, like, I'm I don't know for sure what these other four are doing, but my Spidey sense picked up in the same way that it did with Keiko Cake, Cake. So, so my best advice for avoiding scams is stick with not particularly attractive middle-aged men <laughs> who have no problem uh, showing their ass when they blow a trade. Um, I would like to repeat that, want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on, um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, of actually uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at brian, V R I A N at com. I'll see you next time. Bye.